0: Welcome to episode three hundred and forty-three of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a great conversation with editor, writer, teacher, and fashionista Patrice Adcroft. We talk with Patrice about how she got into editing and the magazine world. We discuss powerful women, everyday donuts, fusion to fashion. Her favorite book as a little person, little woman. We also discuss resigning over an ethical issue. Seventeen Magazine at the time of the Columbine tragedy, and New York City, cross-dressers, as well as going up against the establishment. Great, great conversation with Patrice Adcroft on this week's program. We have an EWSA titled Sage, and an essay from the New Yorker magazine by Cora Frazier, titled, Your Immortality Application. A bit of humor for you. And a poem called Naturally. All of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 343 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. S.A.G.E. Children playing in the sunshine of a chilly November morning as a bucolic veil of snowflakes flurry about the sky and paved streets intersecting perpendicular in two dimensions and with exponential curves alongside linear slopes simultaneous within a multitude of dimension. As I struggle with my limited sense of the better person I could be, the children are waiting with their parents for the bus to bring them to school, where they start to become more learned in the ways of being human. As they wait, the younger ones are trying to climb a pile of wood chips formed by a large machine from the trees it cut down to craft a rectangular lot of land level and ready to build a new home for a new family. The older ones direct their progeny with some sense of an understanding of fun echoing in the lilt of their voices to come down from the wood chip pile so as to not get dusty and dirty for school. I wonder how I got from that youthful stage to this one, as an aspiring sage, and then realize I know as much now as I did then innately, with a more informed view because of a half-century earth time, as a witness. Unaware, though, how my filters and self-absorption have thwarted and distracted a more truthful understanding and existence, C'est la vie.
1: Just love to burn Mom loves the both of them You see it's in the blood Both kids are good and mom. Blood's thicker than the mud It's a family affair leave, cause your heart is there, but you're, you you can not stay, cause you've been somewhere else, you can't cry, cause you look broke down, but you're crying anyway, cause you're all broke down, it's a family affair. it's a family affair, it's a family affair,
0: Patrice Adcroft, is that you? Uh,
2: Yes, Mr. Demure, it
0: is. (laughs) (laughs) It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
2: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be asked to the prom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the prom. It's just like the prom, exactly.
2: I'm dressed for it. I I
0: believe it. You're always dressed wonderfully. (laughs) Before we get started, let me share with the listeners a little background information. Patrice Adcroft, writer, ed- editor, teacher, fashionista. Ms. Adcroft worked at Good Housekeeping, Family Weekly, Omni, NetGuide, Style, Seventeen, Marie Claire, and Discover. Someone once joked that Patrice's range was fusion to fashion. Ms. Adcroft went to Syracuse University, taught at Syracuse University, both in Syracuse and London, and she also taught at New York University. Patrice wrote several connected short stories that were published in a book called Everyday Donuts that relates to her family's connection to Krispy Kreme. Ms. Adcroft started her writing career at the Carbondale Minor in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. In 2002, she was diagnosed as having MS, put on aggressive drugs, and after much trauma, found out the diagnosis was wrong, as were the medications. She spent 2009 through 2011 in bed alone. It ended her career. But because of it, Patrice knows more about autoimmune conditions, Lyme disease, and spine surgery than she ever wanted. Ms. Edcroft classifies herself as a devout but inept Catholic. When Patrice couldn't function... 101 people, former colleagues, neighbors, strangers, signed up to help her. She loves New York City and New Yorkers. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is excited to have on the program Patrice Adcroft. All right, let's get to it. Yes,
2: Let, I would like to edit that introduction for you.
0: I'm sure you would. <laughs> it's probably in your nature.
2: I'm sorry. What did you say?
0: It's probably in your nature. You can't help yourself. I,
2: well, I just don't think I've done all that much so, compared to most people, yourself included. So forgive
0: me. But. <laughs> no, no. I think you've done a lot, quite a lot. Uh, it's pretty impressive, and uh, I, I want to get a sense in the 25 or so minutes we have of of your life up to this point, and that's going to be hard to do, but let's get started with um I guess uh, a, a big part of of your uh, professional career and I guess it has affected your personal life too is is uh, your career in editing. Give us a bit of an overview of that how you got into it, what it was like, things of that nature.
2: Well, at age eight, having read little women like so many other young girls, I decided that I would move to New York City and uh, be a writer. And in order to get here, I consumed vast amounts of Fifth Avenue bars because I knew that New York City and Fifth Avenue were one. And at that time, we lived on Madison Avenue, and I thought that was a sign because I knew Madison Avenue was in New York. (laughs) And throughout high school, I never even tasted a beer because i was afraid that if i lost the one brain cell that would get me to the march bus station which led to new york city i wouldn't make it so it was just Hood spa that hey, got me here and
0: uh and when you say you know, madison was, avenue when you say madison avenue just so folks no you're not talking about madison avenue in new york city you're talking about madison avenue in uh, scranton Grandson, Pen-
2: pennsylvania that's right <laughs>
0: So, Hutzpah got you there.
2: Yes, I think so.
0: And And how old old were you when you first got there?
2: Well, I arrived with two friends in tow uh, at the age of 23. We had saved enough money to live at a transient hotel for six weeks. It was called the Hotel Seville. It was filled with drug dealers, prostitutes, um, gun traders... And you never got in the elevator without an escort.
3: <laughs>
2: but, um, and we were all looking for jobs in New York City. And I, after six weeks, we ran of, out of money and I did not get a job. And I kept in contact with the many people I interviewed with. And finally, I got a job the following year at so- Good Housekeeping Magazine. So that was my beginning in New York.
0: And we're talking about, what, in the 1970s, I'd imagine? Yes, yep,
2: 1978, yes.
0: And what was that job at Good Housekeeping, head editor of all that was important?
2: <laughs> it was the least, no, it was a assistant editor, copywriter, doing fashion, and beauty, and decorating copy, and I had aspirations at that point of being an international journalist, so I was much chagrined, and was in that job for nine months, which was the longest job of my life, (laughs) but I kept harassing the editor-in-chief with notes at 7.30 in the morning on topics that I thought were not being adequately covered like women's health, and finally they moved me to a writer's position in another department. So,
0: and was it uh, pretty much a male dominated uh, scene at good housekeeping at that point?
2: Well, no, there were quite a few women that were underlings, but the chief jobs were all held by men, ironically, because uh, it was a magazine. That was aimed at women, so that was the way it was for a long time, and it's still (laughs) very. The world is still very male-dominated, as we know. So
0: yes, yes, and and, uh, why
2: we have a male president?
0: Not, not a very good male, and not a very good president. I might add, (sighs) my own opinion, not projecting that on you, Um, but I concur. Oh thank you. <laughs> so, I, I I look at your CV, and and I see that you you've gone, you went from one magazine to another. How did that occur? Was it because of better opportunities uh, in in the areas you were most interested?
2: It was because the only way to get ahead was to keep moving, and that. If you stayed in the same place, nobody was likely to recognize all the things you could bring to the party. So I just kept moving, and I thought, well, either people will think I'm really unreliable or really smart. (laughs) And uh, I kept moving so that I eventually, at the age of 31, was running a science magazine (laughs) With very little science background, but with some medical background. And, um, yeah, I had a staff of mostly men and a big budget, and it was great.
0: This was Omni Magazine?
2: That was Omni Magazine, correct. I was the first woman to uh, edit a science magazine.
0: That's pretty impressive.
2: Uh, I don't know.
0: (laughs) And, and My
2: staff was impressive. My staff was very, very impressive. They were all really, really smart people.
0: Well, so I, th- I
2: was lucky to be in their company.
0: I think the the sign of a, a good leader is one that knows enough to surround themselves with talented people. So correct,
2: I do. Yes, and yeah, and let them be talented.
0: Exactly. Don't so take
2: that away from them.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And and so this was in the 80s now, we're talking, Omni. Yes. Mm -hmm. And how long were you at the helm there?
2: I was there twice as long as the previous four male editors-in-chief, which was four years, and I um, resigned over an ethical issue. And the owners decided to put an advertisement on the cover, and I felt that I really couldn't continue to take their money and also serve the readership, so I resigned, and it made the New York Times. It was a big brouhaha, uh, because usually people didn't abandon their posts for things like that, so, and I had no job lined up, so... (laughs) Thank goodness I've always had a rental apartment. I never put any money down to buy one, so I just like, well, see what happens.
0: Well, that's pretty. It's pretty courageous and uh, pretty uh, impressive. Again, because a lot of times too, it's it's easy to find a way to rationalize your way around an ethical issue, so you don't have to make tough decisions and put yourself in a difficult situation. So, my compliments to you.
2: Well, it. I don't know if everyone thought it was the smartest thing to do, but I had always said that you should define yourself in terms of who you are as an individual, not who you are on the masthead, or even if you're on a masthead. so I kind of had to walk that talk
0: <laughs> I understand I understand well again integrity is 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 key here it's important um, now we we look at we look at the future from omni then after that you you bounced to a couple other magazines and so there was a poignant period uh, or moments when you were running 17 magazine you want to talk about that
2: that was definitely my favorite job and i had a staff of 65 63 women Fabulous individuals it was it was really like a shangri La. We all got along very, very well, all had each other 's backs, and we uh, were the leading teenage magazine at the time of columbine, and I had um, just been to a sales conference in the Bahamas was on my way back and Got a phone call while I was in a car that the tragedy had happened in Columbine, and they, my staff, was ready to dispatch reporters to the scene, and I asked them to hold off till I got back to the office. Uh, management was pressuring them to send someone. The other teen magazines were sending someone. The, of course. The press was descending upon Columbine. And when I got back to the office, I uh, called a meeting. Everyone came in to the conference room, and I said, we are not going to be another rubbernecker at this crime scene. We are not going to stick a microphone under a young person's neck and ask how they felt when their best friend just got blown away. We are going to do something different. And uh, again, I put my job on the line. And what we did was we had a website that 12 million people were signed up to tap. And that night, the staff stayed there all night. And we put up a poll, are you afraid to go to school? We put up a bulletin board where kids could write condolence notes to the survivors of Columbine. We hotlinked to a women's magazine where we had a psychologist on hand to help parents guide their kids through this tragedy and um, a number of other social media aspects. And by six in the morning, I was on four four different television shows talking about what the kids had written on our website.
0: And this is back in 1999.
2: That's right. That's right. So I was able to, we were all able to look at it very differently and be a positive force in the light of this horrible incident. And um, kids at that point were typing in, this is the only place I feel safe now. It was incredibly moving.
0: And and these were uh, teenagers from all over the country, not just from uh, Columbine.
2: That's right. But several people from Columbine wrote, that they only felt safe on the Internet.
0: And just for people who don't know uh, because they weren't born yet uh, or what have you, Columbine happened April 20, 1999. Twelve students and one teacher uh, were murdered by two uh, students of that high school in uh, Colorado. Right? And it was
2: really the yeah. first ma- you know, sort of mass shooting in a high school, at that point it it was not a daily occurrence it was very unusual
0: Yes, it was uh, unfortunately now not as much, um, but that's a whole other story um, So yeah, that was pretty groundbreaking stuff uh, Patrice, uh, in 1999 a little bit ahead of the curve using social media to connect people in a positive way um, and also sort of not objectifying the tragedy um, that occurred there it was a, something else that pops out to me in your approach. Um, now, from, from there, I'd like to go to a different, in, into a different direction. Again, we're talking to Patrice Adcroft, editor, writer, teacher, and fashionista, among other things, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And, um, I mean, you did work for Marie Claire magazine, I don't know if you want to uh, talk about anything that occurred there or or if you would like to go on to the book of short stories you wrote called uh, Everyday Donuts.
4: Well,
2: I can tell you at Marie Claire, we also did a lot of social action. And, and wherever I was, that was one of the things that I embraced and was attempting to spearhead. We um, took action regarding domestic violence and had a moment of silence, uh, introduced that was, uh, honored by Congress. Instead of having a moment to talk about domestic violence, let's have a moment of silence on a certain date for domestic violence victims and then launch this time to talk campaign. We also, uh, did a series that was, uh, it's easier to get this than that, and it's easier to get a gun than birth control. It's easier to do this. And uh, that idea spawned the what would you do ABC thing <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's on yeah. uh, that, that Friday nights now. So wherever I've been lucky enough to land, that whole kind of outreach and the impact magazines at that point could make was always part of my shtick. (laughs) Uh,
0: Now, now, uh, do you think that's still true, that it's easier to get a gun than birth control?
2: Well, maybe easier than Plan B. I, I actually think that it is easier not in New York State, thank goodness, you know, I'm so privileged to live here but yeah i think it is most places
0: yeah i think you might be right uh so your position at uh, marie claire and and 17 editor in chief is that right and now we get to your your uh, book of short essays that are all connected called everyday donuts and uh, I, I, my understanding is it has something to do with your family's connection to Krispy Kreme Donuts. Is that right?
2: Well, that was the inspiration, but the s- stories are fiction. And even though several people in my own family think they appear on the pages, and, and one of my sisters has said, why did you make me fat? <laughs> um, none of them, none of them appear on the pages. So, it was, it was sort of a, um, just an inspiration. My, m- you know, from age 13, we all worked in my father's donut shop on Wyoming Avenue, and we met a lot of characters, obviously, while we were there. And, uh, and six of my siblings are still there, so.
0: <laughs> a nice big family
2: yeah nine
0: children wow, wow. I guess you have to be powerful in some way, shape, or form to navigate so you know and get what you need to get in a house with that many children. Maybe that had some some sort of an influence on uh, how you developed as a as a person
2: It may have although honestly, and you know this, having grown up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, we thought my mother was a slacker because the Haggertys had 12 and the Doherty's had 12 and the others you know somebody else had 13 and the Lawhens had 13 and so it was like mom
0: <laughs> <laughs> why so lazy yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> gee six uh, children in seven years couldn't you do better <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh all the climate uh, change advocates and people that are concerned about population growth uh, that listen to this show are probably steaming out their ears hearing these numbers.
2: Except I have often pointed out that if you look at the Adcroft Clan, three of us mushed together don't average the average American. <laughs> we are thinner than the average American and probably eat less. So, uh, and uh, while I was at Discover, we actually did this carbon neutral issue where we gave back the the uh, carbon credit that we incurred by publishing a particular issue. And we each of the editors and uh, staff members did their own footprint, and I had the smallest. So
0: excellent excellent
2: so there
0: yeah well it is i mean i have i have uh, a bunch of kids myself and it's kind of the culture and you don't think about it and, and in many ways it's wonderful uh but i know there are folks who do question families that size because you know of the consumption and, and the likes i was just joking but at the same time i know i have listeners out there in, in washington state and and uh uh, some places in Vermont that listen—they're probably like, "Oh man, you have two two children—that's all you should be having." It's a you know, it's a different time in many regards. You know, you came from Scranton, you had the opportunity to meet a lot of individuals in your dad's donut shop, and and then go to to New York, which was probably uh, a totally different place uh, for better and for worse, I suppose, when you first uh, landed there in the late seventies, and and then you know got into the the magazine biz and and uh and all how how has all that changed new york city the the uh the the periodicals that are published how how has that culture changed how has the i guess even the city and the nation at large you think changed their view with regard to um some of these issues we talked about today w- women's uh equality and gun control and um you know family family values all of that how did, in in all the years that you've been working uh and analyzing these things what what have you come to understand
2: well you know new york city and and uh, i've been lucky enough to live in manhattan is sort of a microcosm and so you feel like you're in Monaco and in Bangladesh at once, and you're hearing different languages all of the time, and you're confronted with people of all ages and all back, all different types of backgrounds. And so that was very much the case when I first arrived here, and it's still the case today. And it's a place where people not only chase their dreams, but catch their dreams. And I'm always impressed by the fact that so many young people, like your son, come here to be actors and creatives and get to really uh, develop their potential and then influence so many other people. So that's the constant. That's the constant. Some of the other things... Obviously, change, it's uh, a more divided city in relationship to the haves and the have-nots, although the crime rate is, you know, minuscule. I live in the 6th Precinct, and we have the same crime rate as Pella, Iowa, or someplace, like, no, zero crime. (laughs) So, in fact, most of the, many of the people in my building, I won't say my address, but keep their doors open. And I have a 100-year-old friend who lives across the street, and she keeps her apartment door open. So that says something (laughs) about New Yorkers. Uh, But this is a bubble, as you know. Mr. Kimura, this New York City is a bubble. And what you have to be aware of is that the rest of the United States is not as tolerant. Does not embrace some of the same values that New Yorkers are forced to embrace because we're all like cheek by jowl here. We're we're living in each other's breathing space practically, and uh, the a young man across the street just started a vintage shop, a, a thrift shop. He appeared at the door the other day. I went to meet him, and he had on uh, chunky high heels, a skirt, beer-chested,
4: <laughs>
2: tattooed, definitely a cross-dresser, and, and it was, like, so cool. And nobody looked twice. So it's just, you know, that's that's one of the things I love about New York.
0: And... Yeah, I, I think you put it beautifully, and 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 it is it is a bubble, and it is, in my view. I mean, some people would say that's awful what you just described. I, I think it's beautiful and inspiring, and that's the problem, in my view. You know, with a larger society that we're both a part of in the United States is is you know the, that struggle, like what what is what is okay, what is the the minimum level of. Of uh freedom and respect and what and and to what what kind of constraints should we or should we not put on uh, people's w- way of existence and and I you know I I, I would go back to the nincompoop that is in charge now and some of the mindsets that have their hands on the levers of of our of our laws they they don't seem to to be as open as we would like you and me, I would think uh, and and maybe, even they feel being divisive helps their cause to keep their, themselves in, in, in control. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful that there are folks such as yourself who do indeed go to New York and make a difference in, in our um, and are influencers. And that's the way that we are able to reflect and to see what the possibilities are.
2: I think you're right. And also, the one gripe I have, and I, I recently said I'm far to the left of Bernie Sanders. That's how far left I am. But the one gripe I have with liberals is that they don't tolerate the other point of view. And I think that all of us have to understand that fear often grips people who don't understand or feel comfortable with change. And if there's one thing that, that you said earlier, what, you know, propelled you, and I said chutzpah, but it was probably that I was, I really was never afraid of anything. I was never afraid of failing or not having any money or going up against the establishment or what, you know, wearing some outrageous outfit, I just wasn't afraid because I wasn't attached to a lot of trappings. And if you're fearful, it makes you close down. And it's our job to help these people feel less fearful, less threatened.
0: Well put. I think that might be the place to put uh, a semicolon. Would that be right?
2: That would be fine.
0: (laughs) Until next time, Patrice Adcroft, a pleasure talking with you, and uh, I hope you're having a nice autumn in New York City, and uh, maybe we'll cross paths during the holidays.
2: I hope so. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time out.
2: And love to your family.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. I'll send it. I'll share it. I'll give kisses for you.
2: Very good. And hugs. Take care. Okay, bye.
4: Old time living on a half time schedule, always trying to make everybody feel special. Learning when to break and when to hit the pedal Working hard to look good till we die A critical reason, there's a population Raising eyebrows and a new generation Rosie the Riveter with renovations And it always gets better with the wine Redesigning women Running the world while we're cleaning up the kitchen Making bangs, shaking hands, driving natives
0: From the October 28th edition of the New Yorker magazine, Shouts and Murmurs, Your Immortality Application by Cora Frazier. We regret to inform you that your petition to not die has been denied. We had a tremendous number of applicants this year, more than 500 million, as awareness of our services once considered a, quote, hoax spread across unedited social media platforms. We assure you that we reviewed your application thoroughly. We remind you that omission of any material was cause for rejection, and you wrote N.A. on the areas marked heirs, life insurance policy, and number of times you've used the expression, I could just die. However, we conducted our review with the information available. According to your statement of eternal purpose, you have an idea for an app that decodes dreams and then recommends charities based on those dreams, you fact-check people who post misleading information on Twitter about your favorite TV shows, and you plan to adopt a dog from a rescue shelter. These attributes, while encouraging, describe more than 90% of our applicants, many of whom are children. A few judges were initially persuaded by your argument that your parents told you that your death was, quote, so far away it would practically never happen, and therefore it would be unfair if you actually had to die. However, we ultimately concluded that if we granted you immortality on these terms, we would have to spare everyone whose parents told them this which would create an insurmountable logistical and metaphysical problem for our systems. We are pleased that your yoga practice has helped you recognize the light in all beings and that you, quote, don't even feel weird about having the loudest ujjayi breathing in the class. But your story about meditating for 30 minutes did raise some questions among our panel about your ability to handle an eternity of the mind. The judges were unclear whether you have a fatal illness or another imminent threat to your life. A few members of our panel argued that your answer to the adversity question, quote, body pains that could be cancer, was the reason for your petition. But others pointed out that the doctor's report you submitted indicated that you are in excellent health which made us wonder whether your impetus for submitting this application was simply your realization that you would one day die. And, madam, we must admit this gross lack of understanding, only recently corrected, did not recommend you to our judges as a candidate for eternal life. In terms of a future resubmission, we suggest that you take another look at your references, The descriptions your boss provided of the skills you've acquired and the projects you've managed at the media company where you work were impressive, but they offered our judges little insight into how you would perform when faced with the burden of infinity. The rest of your references appear to be recommendations for college written by high school teachers. Madam, we caution you, immortality is not for everyone. If you have a Colic, you will have a colic for all time. You will have to forego any plans to haunt anyone. You will have to forego fantasies about your own epic funeral. We hope that you understand how incredibly selective this process is. We wish it could be different. We wish all human beings could be afforded the gift, or some might say, the curse, that we provide. Every day we're working to bring you new solutions, but At the moment, our immortality options are limited to cryogenic freezing, vampirism, and really, really good gut bacteria. We know this news must be devastating. We appreciate the opportunity to read your application, including the supplemental childhood drawings you submitted of yourself beside a bearded figure with a wizard hat labeled God. It's always disappointing to hear that your entire existence, your body, soul, and consciousness will rot into the soil of a temporary earth and disappear into vast nothingness. We encourage you to reapply, reminding you that we accept application fees on a rolling basis.
5: have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day It's great to be an American Ain't no lion or tiger, ain't no mama snake watermelon in the buckwheat cake everybody is as happy as a man can be Climb a ball little walk sail away with me Sail away. The man in oh, oh. just We will cross the mighty ocean in the just and they sail away, sail away, we will cross the mighty ocean in the just.
0: naturally pumpkin sunshine orange and yellow painted landslide might challenge a fellow to reflect and recalibrate the normative treble and bass so that he can tighten his boots with their lace and walk steadfast open and free keeping pace with everything naturally
3: Silent desperation Keeping an eye on the Holy Land A hypothetical destination Say who is this walking man Well the leaves have come to turn in and the goose has gone to fly And bridges are for burning So don't you let that yearning pass you by the walking man The walking man walks Well, any other man stops and talks But the walking man walks Is on the pumpkin and the hay is in the barn, yeah. And Pappy's come to ramble and all, stumbling around drunk down on the farm. And the walking man walks, he doesn't know nothing at all. Any other man stops and talks. But the walking man walks on by, walk on by, and most everybody got seen the soul it ain't always easy for a weed to grow, no, no, so he don't hold the rope for no one, the sure one's always missing, and something is never quite right. Robert, who would want to listen to you kissing his existence good night. Walk in man, walk on by my door, will any other man stops and talks, but not the walk in. Walk, walk on, walking man.
0: And there you have it, episode 343 of Troubadours and Raconteurs, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Patrice Adcroft, Cora Frazier, The New Yorker Magazine, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt. Stefan Grapelli, Benny Sings, Sly and the Family Stone, High Women, Randy Newman, James Taylor, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this time.